Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. We ask, oh God, that in attending to your voice, that we might hear your challenge and your word of encouragement and hope spoken over our lives. God, make us receptive to your word. Plant your word deep in our hearts and may it bear fruit of righteousness and justice and love in our actions in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So the quote that you guys heard in that video was taken from a book entitled Nothing to be Frightened of. And it was written by a man whose name was Julian Barnes. And I think one of the interesting things is that Barnes is not a Christian. Uh, He identifies as an agnostic. And yet uh, in this book, he has no interest in defanging religion or does he have any taste for defining God into something that works for me? And uh, there's this great scene in the book where he is at a dinner party with a bunch of neighbors, and he overhears some friends of his talking kind of off in the distance, and he hears one of them say, uh, well, if God would do that for his son, then why shouldn't he do it for us? And Barnes shouts out across the room, because he's God, for Christ's sake, and uh, which I like. But reflecting on this incident, he writes, Quote, there seems to be little point in a religion which is merely a weekly social event as opposed to one which tells you exactly how to live and which colors and stains everything. And then he poses this question, I think, to all of us as Jesus followers. He says, what's the point of it all? What is the point unless you and it are serious? I mean, seriously serious. You know, it's my observation, I don't know if you share this with me, but it's my observation that there is way too much Christianity in America today that is nothing more than pop psychology and self-help or maybe nationalism or consumerism or maybe celebrity culture or conservative politics, all papered over with a thin veneer of Jesus, but which is not really seriously serious about much of anything when it comes to the gospel. And I think that there is too little Christianity that takes the radical way of Jesus, the beautiful hope of new creation, the shocking hope of the second coming of Jesus to make everything new, the radical ethic of enemy love. There is is too little Christianity around us that takes all of that with utter seriousness. And I think in my honest moments, I would say there's too little of my own practice of the Christian faith that takes all of that with utter seriousness. Would anybody else in the room agree with that? Well, the story that we are looking at today is really the the quintessential story of a faith that is taken with utter and complete seriousness. You know, the story of, of Abraham being called and then responding to this call of God to sacrifice his son Isaac on the mountain, which God would show him. This story is the quintessential story, the story par excellence of a faith that is taken seriously serious. And so I want to invite you today to to enter into this story and to explore how it might actually challenge us to take steps of more radical and obedient and serious faith. 
Now, I have to say at the outset as we enter into this story, uh, this in some ways is a bit of a tricky story to enter into because I don't know about you, but ever since I've had children, I've found this story incredibly disturbing. You know, it, 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 it raises some very, very difficult questions about God. You know, what kind of God administers this kind of test? And then we wonder about Abraham. I mean, what kind of father goes through with this? And then I wonder about my children. How are they going to read this story? I mean, I can remember when my kids were little, uh, I would try to kind of skip over this story in the picture Bibles because I just wanted to avoid the questions. You know, honey, you know, Abraham loved God so much that he was willing to kill his son. Honey, I want you to know I love God that much. And then, you know, she locks her door at night, you know, and her eyes grow wide, you know. But it does raise a lot of difficult questions. But I want to suggest it's not until we face this story in all of its disturbing seriousness that we'll actually ever, ever experience it as this call upon our lives to enter into radical lives of obedience and trust in God. And so let's together walk through this story I want you to see that the story begins with a shocking command, verse 1. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. The command is shocking because the text tells us that it comes, quote, after these things. And we say, well, after what things? Well, after the long drama that we have been engaged in over these last several weeks, and it's a drama about God's promise, and it's about the inability of their own human, you know, their humanity with all their barrenness to produce the answer to God's promise within themselves. And it's about God's promise being fulfilled and God delivering his son, uh, Isaac, in the face of all the barrenness of aged Sarah and aged Abraham. And so the whole drama up to this point, like we've wondered, uh, is God going to provide and, and can Abraham trust? And sure enough, God provides and Abraham trusts. And we imagine Abraham and Sarah entering into this season in their life where life is good. They're watching this gracious miracle of God grow before their very eyes. And no doubt they're, they're you know, elbowing each other, just laughing like, could you believe it? This child is now ours. And it's after these things. that the word of the Lord comes to Abraham and issues a shocking command. And it's shocking because the command contradicts the promise. The promise said, through Isaac, your descendants shall be. And the command says, Isaac must now be sacrificed. And the only thing more shocking than the command of God in our text is the response of Abraham. When the command comes, Abraham goes along with it. Verse 3. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. 
So the command comes and Abraham responds to the command. And we think, Abraham, what are you doing? You know, what kind of father goes along with this kind of command? You know, I was uh, talking to Pastor Robert this week and I told him the story I was going to be preaching on. And he said, well, make sure, he said, that you talk about the teleological suspension of the ethical command. That's what I said. No, I said, what? You know, this guy has two PhDs. You only get a sentence like that from somebody with two PhDs that's your friend. And uh, so I went to research, and that comes from a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard in a book of his called Fear and Trembling. And he kind of wrestles with this story, and, and he comes to this conclusion that what Abraham does is ethically wrong, but it's religiously correct. It's ethically wrong because he's, he's, he's arising to have a son sacrifice. And he's like, how could anybody do that? And yet Abraham here does it. And it, we, we wonder why and how could he do this? And we might think of it perhaps as a fit of religious zeal gone mad. But the text doesn't leave us that option. You know, this is a very firm and settled and deliberate decision. The text tells us that he got up early and he chopped the wood, and he saddled the donkey, and he called his son, and he started on his journey. And the journey lasted three days, three long and excruciating days, three days for Abraham to feel sick to his stomach, three days to debate with and question God, three days for Abraham to spend time with the son that he loved. And yet even after three days, he goes through with it. He and his son Isaac, whom he loved, walked up the mountain and he built the altar and he tied up his son and he raised the knife. The story is told of Martin Luther reading this story aloud to his family. And when he gets to this point, his wife, Catherine, blurted out, no one could do that. And yet he does it. And we're left asking, why? How could you do this? How could any parent raise a knife to their child? How could you do this, Abraham? You know, one suggestion is that Abraham here is just really, really obedient, you know, when I was growing up, I used to listen to a, a preacher on the radio from the South whose name was Charles Stanley. And I can still remember him telling this story about uh, a time he said, he said, my daddy used to say to me, he said, Charles, now you obey God no matter what. He said, if God tells you to run your head into a brick wall, he said, you run your head into a brick wall. He said, obey God no matter what. Is that, you know, Abraham here? Is he just being really, really obedient? You know, obedience is good only if it serves a noble and humane end. Obedience that doesn't serve a noble and good end is not good. And this is the kind of obedience that was condemned at the Nuremberg trials. And so, listen, this story is not about blind obedience to the inscrutable command of God. I want to suggest to you that this story is not so much about obedience as it is about trust, a deep and an abiding trust in the promise of God. I, I want you to notice back in the text at verse 7, at the heart 
of this story stands this excruciating conversation between Isaac and Abraham. And it's this conversation that gives us a window into what's really going on. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac asked that excruciating question, dad, where's the ram for the burnt offering? You know, what's, what's going on here, dad? And notice Abraham's response. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. You know, Abraham does not yet know how God is going to provide a sacrifice of offering because God has not yet told him. You know, and he, he tells Isaac, Isaac, the lamb will be provided. And Isaac might wonder how. But Abraham can't answer because Abraham does not yet know because God, again, has not yet told him. But he knows this. He knows that God will provide for the sacrifice that is needed. Listen, Abraham knows something. This son that God has said must be sacrificed is not any ordinary son. In this son, the hopes and dreams of all the years are, are laid in him. You know, it is through this son that the nation of Israel will come. It is through this son that the savior of humanity, Jesus, will come. You know, without this son, there is no nation of Israel. Without this son, there is no biblical story. Without this son, there is no Jesus. Without this son, there is no hope for humanity in the world. Everything rests upon this son. And God has promised, God has promised again and again, through this son, I will be good to my word. Through this son, I'll bring my healing and my blessing to all of the peoples of the earth. Abraham, you can trust me. In spite of the barrenness, Abraham, in spite of your age, Abraham, you can trust me. And now even in spite of this command, Abraham, you can trust me. And Abraham indeed trusts God. A little bit later in the book of Hebrews, actually a little bit earlier in the text, uh, Abraham said, the boy and I will go to worship and we will return. In other words, Abraham is confident that even though he and his son are going up this mountain and, and he, he's supposed to go sacrifice his son, he is confident. He doesn't know how, but he's confident that he and his son Isaac are going to come back down from this mountain because God will be faithful to his promise. Later, the author to uh, a letter to the Hebrews said, quote, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. In other words, he had a, a early hope in God's power, not only in the face of barrenness to bring life, but actually in the face of death to bring new life. And so here, Abraham has a deep and an abiding trust in the promise of God. Now, this was not a trust that developed overnight, was it? I mean, Abraham has been walking with God now for a very, very long time. This has been decades now. 
And what has he seen throughout the years? Well, it is the same thing that many of you have seen throughout the years of your long journey of following Jesus. Time and time again, God has proven true to you. God has been faithful to you. You have seen time and time again the goodness of God in the land of the living. God has been faithful to you. And this is what Abraham has seen. He, he, he has seen God overcome barrenness. He has seen God prove true to his word. And he trusts that now God's power that gives life to barren wombs can even raise his dead son if need be. And as the story goes on, Abraham's trust, like many of yours, was not in vain. Because look at what it says in verse 10. And then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to harm him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And so God fulfills his promise. God provides for Abraham. And Abraham and his son Isaac do come joyfully down that mountain and they name that place, the Lord will provide. But it does raise a question, right? Why is God testing this way? I mean, why this kind of test? Why does God administer this test? And one answer that's given to us in the text is that God wants to see what's in Abraham. You know, this is not just any ordinary person. This is the father of faith. And God wants to know what is his faith made of. He wants to know, Abraham, do you trust me? You know, have you ever thought, you know, God might be asking that very personal question of you, do you actually trust me? Is this real? Or are you just kind of doing your own thing and just papering over it with a veneer of religiosity in Jesus? Or is your trust real and abiding and honest? God wants to know from Abraham, do you trust me? And at the end of the test, God says, now I know. Do you, now I know. And we think, well, 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 didn't God already know? Doesn't God already know everything? Well, yeah, of course he does. But listen, God is not the un eternal unblinking stare in the sky God is not simply watching us from the distance. God actually wants to know us personally and intimately in the unfolding of our individual stories. You are not just a number in a crowd to the creator of all things. You are a name and a face and God wants to know your name and he wants to know your face and he wants to be in relationship with you personally and intimately. And, Abraham, and God says of Abraham, now I know. But I, I, I don't only think he wants to know what's in Abraham. I think he wants Abraham to know what's in Abraham. 
You know, sometimes it takes a difficult test to really evoke what's there beneath the surface. I can remember uh, years ago uh, going bungee jumping with some friends out in San Bernardino. And this is uh, kind of at the emergence of, of like, there was a bungee jump craze, I think, down in, in the 90s at some point. And so it was all new. And I remember going to this place and, uh, you know, you go there, you get in line. And I remember watching, uh, you know, guys, you know, jump off. And we had some friends who were up ahead of us. And we would just laugh our heads off as we're watching these people up on the edge. And they're all getting all terrified and freaked out. And then they're jumping, you know, and then they're almost crying. And we're making fun of them and laughing. It's all just, it's all fun and games until I was standing on the edge about ready to jump off. And then all of a sudden, a new set of questions emerged in my head. <laughs> How many people die a year bungee jumping? <laughs> and do these things work in this harness? And, and, you know, yes. How does it work, sir? Yes, sir. No, sir. You know, and you're, you're kind of wondering, is this thing going to hold me when I jump off? Because if it doesn't work, I am going to die. <laughs> and sometimes God takes you into seasons and into moments in your life where if this thing isn't true if God is not there, if his promise of new creation and hope of renewal and justice and love flooding creation, if the second coming of Christ, if the resurrection of the dead is not real and true, if that hope is all just make-believe, then you're just going to die. <laughs> and you know, some of you may be in a season in your life right now, and you might be wondering why, what, what's going on? You know, very often God tries our faith in order to produce in us a deeper and a richer trust in his own promise. And it's not for its own sake, it's because a life lived with that kind of risk and that kind of vulnerability and that kind of trust actually is the full life and the good life and the joyful life. A life when you are not dependent merely upon what you in your own power and efforts and abilities can do. A life where you actually have to depend upon and rest upon the goodness and the power of one outside of yourself, namely God. And so God brings us into seasons of difficulty and where we are called upon to trust him. And so here, first, first, God administers this test, number one, so that he might see what's in Abraham. But I think God is doing something more than that. I don't only think in our story that he wants to see what's in Abraham. I think secondly, he administers this test because he wants Abraham and us to see what's in God. You know, it's not enough for God to know what's in Abraham. What's fundamentally more important is for Abraham to know what's in God. You know, it's interesting, there's three statements that are repeated throughout the narrative. And if in the ancient Hebrew language, you know, if you wanted to really put, you know, a spotlight on something, you know, you want to put like your highlighter pen on something, you know, you would repeat something again and again and again to say, look, pay attention. This is the point. And three times in our text, the phrase is repeated to say, pay attention, don't miss this. And it's the phrase, God will provide. God, in this dialogue with Isaac says, or Abraham in this dialogue with Isaac says, the Lord will provide for himself. And then uh, the text says, uh, the, the, Abraham, the, the angel says, the, the, the Lord has provided 
And then at the end, God, or Abraham names the mountain on which all this thing takes place. He says, this is the mount where the Lord has provided. Are you getting the point? This is a disclosure in this story about who God is. He is the God, yes, that demands difficult, radical, hard obedience. He is a God that calls forth our deepest vulnerability and trust that sometimes calls us into places of deep risk. But he is also, and fundamentally more importantly, the God who provides. He is the God who provides. And God wants to reveal himself to Abraham in this way as the God who provides. But let's just press this a little bit further. And uh, to do that, I just need to give you a history of religions in two minutes. Can we do that? So, um, you know, th the ancient world believed, you know, that their future, their crops, their livelihood, the rains, uh, whether or not they could produce children, it depended upon forces, cosmic forces, divine forces outside of themselves. And so if they wanted to secure rain for their crops or abundance for their harvest, or if like me, they had four daughters and maybe they wanted a son and they, they, they were, if they wanted to get something from the gods, then they would need to appease the gods and to give them something they really wanted. And so this developed in the ancient world, a sacrificial system where they would offer sacrifices again and again to the gods. And, and in their imagination, the gods were crazy. And the gods were angry because those were kind of like the forces around them in nature. They saw the hurricanes and the volcanoes and, and, and that must have meant that the gods were mad and they didn't do enough. And, and so they were constantly thinking, can we produce a sacrifice that's gonna appease the god and secure the blessing that we want? And so they would go again and again trying to give a better and better and better sacrifice. And ultimately, what would be the most precious, the, the, the most valuable sacrifice that they could offer? It would be their child. And so in seasons of deep pain, in, 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 in long seasons of hardship, they would go and offer a child to the gods trying to appease their anger and, and to secure their blessing. And listen, in our story, you know, this takes place in the land of Canaan. In the land of Canaan, child sacrifice was rampant. And actually in the land of Ur, where Abraham came from, child sacrifice was rampant. And so into the ancient world comes this subversive story, this crazy, upside-down, world-transforming story that will transform everyone's perception of God. In our story, this God is not angry and demanding that you give more and more and more and satisfy me and appease me. In this story, this is the God who doesn't demand. This is the God who provides. This is the God who provides for himself the sacrifice. This is the generous, gracious, loving God who actually provides for the needs of his people. And that's why in the story, the angel says, stop, stop, Abraham. I don't demand human sacrifice. I'm not the God who demands leaving you wondering if you have ever done enough. I am the God who provides and who is gracious. And of course, this is exactly what happens in the story. Uh, the ram comes, Isaac is freed. The ram is offered in his stead.
But you know, back in that day, Abraham had no idea just how far God, the creator of all things, would go to provide graciously for his people. He had no idea that one day the son to be sacrificed would be God's own son. The heart that would one day be broken would be God's own heart. The suffering that would be endured would be God's own suffering. Jesus, like Abraham, had to walk out on that dark road and would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For Jesus, like Isaac, walked to the place of sacrifice, carrying on his own back the wood on which he would be placed. And when Jesus was bound, no voice cried out to stay the ropes. And when a blade was drawn no, to pierce his body, no power held it back. This time with Jesus, no other sacrifice was provided. This time the son died. This time the father grieved as he gave his son, his only son, whom he loved. Listen, the God we meet in Jesus, the God who is the creator of everything, this God doesn't stand over us demanding, demanding that we satisfy him, keeping us in perpetual anxiety. Have I done enough? Have I done enough? This is the God who provides his very self in our stead and for our sakes, giving himself so that we might be forgiven, so that we might know grace. He bore our sin. He died in our place. This is the God who provides. And do you know what this means? This means so much. It means that, yes, you know, th th there are oftentimes seasons in our life of following Jesus where it just doesn't feel that hard. It feels good, you know, life is good, family's good, a church is good, you know, it just feels like God is good, and, and you just feel good, you know, and there, there are seasons that are really good, it doesn't feel hard at all to walk in the way of Jesus. But there are seasons where walking with Jesus requires excruciatingly difficult obedience and radical trust and radical sacrifice. There are days when we walk through deep pain. And some of you know that you have been through seasons where you know God is calling you to move toward a spouse that has hurt you and wounded you and been unfaithful to you, and yet you move toward them with faithfulness and with grace and with forgiveness, and it is painful. Or, or, or you, 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 you are in a toxic relationship with a boyfriend that you like, you feel attached to, but you know it's wrong. You know you need to let go of that. You know you need to cut it off. It's not good for you. And you have to make an excruciatingly painful decision in obedience to Jesus. Or maybe seasons where God is calling you to give away more money or to open up your home more generously and with, with more hospitality. And it's hard because it's costing you something. And it starts to feel difficult. Maybe it's sometimes to even remain in a local church because you've been hurt there. And it's just difficult and it's hard. And, and there are seasons of pain. And it's in that place that we need this news announced to us over and over again. God is the God who provides graciously and generously for us. The God we serve, the God that commands strange and difficult obedience is also the God who graciously pursues us and loves us and has laid himself down for us. 
you can trust in this God. You can trust in God when obedience is hard. You can trust in God when the road is dark. You can trust in God when, 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 when your following Jesus requires sacrifice and pain. You can trust in God because God is the God who provides graciously and generously for us. You know, we're going to close out our time together by turning to the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to invite the band to come up. This is really the proper and appropriate place for us to close out our series in the life of Abraham. Because it is in the tangible elements that uh, we are going to hold in our hands, the bread and the cup. It's in these physical, tangible elements that we are reminded that the promise of God took on flesh and blood and dwelt among us. That the promised kingdom of God with all of its healing power and love broke into our old creation in the person of Jesus and in his healing and in his exorcisms and ultimately in his death and in his resurrection from the dead. And it's as we hold on to these elements that we're reminded that the physical, tangible love of God that broke in in Jesus one day will break in again when the curtain is pulled back and Jesus is revealed physically and bodily to us as the world's true king and he makes everything resurrection new. And so as you hold on to these elements, may they be a reminder to you and a call to you to hold on to God's promise to you in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your servant, Abraham. And we pray, oh God, that you would cultivate in us deeper faith. God, would you enable us to trust in your promise in those difficult and dark seasons? Build in us, God, a deeper trust in your promise. We ask this in Christ's name, in whom all of your promises are yes and amen. Amen.